So we are back in Romans. Whoa. And I am so glad to be back in Romans. I love being in a book. Now, today's passage, what I bring to you, I have good news and bad news. Which do you usually prefer to get first, the good news or the bad news? Who's a good news person? I heard David's a bad news person. Who's a bad news first person? Good, because that's what you're going to get. It really didn't matter what you elected, because I've got it planned out already, and it's bad news first. And the bad news is really bad, but the good news is really, really great. And I think both of them are more extreme than we tend to think. The bad news is worse than we tend to think. The good news is better than we tend to think. The bad news is this. The bad news is that sin will continue to make our lives miserable until Jesus returns or we die. Aren't you glad you made the effort to come and hear this? Sin will continue to make our lives miserable until either Jesus returns or we die. When I say sin, I'm talking about all the bad stuff that we do from the morning grumpiness that makes us snap at our family members to nuclear war. All the bad stuff from big to small. That's what I'm talking about when I say sin. It will continue to make our lives miserable until Jesus returns or we die. It's just a fact. And I'm not just talking about uh, society at large. I'm talking about you and me. And I'm not just talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about Christians. And that may be news to some of us. may not have gotten that in the fine print when you signed on. But even as Christians, yes, we're immediately freed from sin in a lot of ways, but we're not totally free from the grip of sin until it's all said and done, until it's over. And Christ comes back and makes it complete. We're freed from sins, uh, the condemnation of it, the guilt and the filth, I like to say. We're clean from it. When God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfection. But the grip of it is still in our lives until the end. It's, I like to picture a tree. Picture a tree. You picturing it? Got it in your mind? Use your imaginations this morning. Picture a tree in the woods, and it's completely overgrown with vines. Wrapped all the way around. You can't even see the bark anymore. All the way up to the very top, all the way out to the furthest limbs, wrapped in a parasitic vine that is eating that tree alive, cutting it off from oxygen, killing it. Okay, that's the picture of sin in everybody's life. That's how we're born. Now, when you become a Christian, something radical happens in your heart, and you're changed. And it's as though someone came and they, they cut around the bottom of the, that, those vines and ripped them out from the roots. But, all those vines that are hanging to your body, your tree, your flesh, remain. And the whole rest of your life is the process of those things drying up and you trying to peel them off of you. It's not immediate. Sin's influence in your life will continue. And it will be hard. And for some of you, it's hard right now because of your own sin. I want you to know you're not alone. And I want you to know that you can expect to experience confusion because of your sin. You can expect to feel helpless sometimes because of your sin. And you can expect to experience great inner turmoil 
because of the guilt or regret or all this confusion because of your sin. Now, how do I know this? Well, from my own experience, for one thing, but I wouldn't assume that that's normative, but from Paul's testimony in this passage. This is Paul writing. I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to remember who it was that wrote this. Let's, let's pick it up from verse, let's see. Actually, from further back in verse 15. Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 15. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I, that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And here we pick up where Ashlyn read. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That, that was Paul who said that. This just destroys the myth that you'll get to a certain level of Christian maturity and you'll be comfortable and sin won't touch you anymore. It just obliterates it in my mind. I don't know what you draw on to maybe think that you're going to be okay and strong against sin, but Paul was stronger. Maybe you have a really great testimony. I talked to a guy this week who has an amazing testimony. Saved out of a world of drugs and alcohol and basically killing himself into Christ. Amazing testimony. Paul's is better. Paul used to murder Christians, or at least take place in the murder of Christians. He'd at least hold their coats. Maybe he wouldn't actually throw the rocks, but he supported it. And the abduction of, of children and women from their homes to be persecuted for being Christians. And then one day God actually verbally spoke to Paul, blinded him, and said, why are you giving me such a hard time, Paul? And Paul said, I don't know. I guess I shouldn't have been. Now I see that Jesus is who he says he is. And from that moment forward, he's totally changed and he becomes from Saul to Paul. But he can't rely on his amazing, miraculous testimony. Sin still affects him. Position. Don't think that because you serve at church, maybe you're on the official board or you teach, or maybe you're the pastor and you wear the suit and the face mic, don't think that that means that you're not going to be afflicted by sin. You will. Because Paul was an apostle and he was afflicted by sin. Maybe some of you know the Bible pretty well. Maybe you did Bible drill when you were kids. Don't think that deep knowledge of the Bible means that you will not be afflicted by sin. Because I promise you, Paul knew the law better than you do. Sacrifice. I guarantee Paul sacrificed more than, than many of our missionaries. I mean, he was beaten nearly to death. Shipwrecked. All kinds of things you'll read in one of the Corinthians 
But that didn't make him exempt from suffering from his own sin and his own consequences of sin, even as a Christian. Maybe you think because you have a pretty regular quiet time, you're not going to deal with sin. You're not going to fall into sin. That Bible you're reading during your quiet time, Paul actually wrote substantial portions of it, and he struggles with sin. Maybe you think because you attend church most of the time, you're not going to struggle with sin. Paul planted the church as we know it, and he struggled with sin. So you see what I mean? It just blows up the notion that we're going to get to a point of maturity where our sin's not going to trip us up anymore. This is the bad news, remember. There is good news, but the bad news is that's not going to happen. Your sin will always be an issue until Christ returns or you die. And I have, in my past, found this so frustrating. When I became a Christian, you hear all the testimonies. People did evil, they became a Christian, and then they were good. I remember being in school. Somebody came and gave their testimony at school. Piedmont person. Chris may remember this. Some guy, I don't remember why, but some guy came to our school at Piedmont and gave his testimony. And he used to be in some kind of biker gang. And he told a story about how he used to do these satanic things. Do you remember this? Uh, he would drink blood from an empty skull and horrible, horrific stuff. But then he became a Christian, and then, bam, he's sitting there talking to a bunch of high schoolers about Christ. And I always had in my mind, well, yeah, I mean, I, I became a Christian when I was eight. All I've ever known is church, and when I was eight, I was clear enough to follow Jesus. But then I had my whole, you know, young man growing up through puberty, all those passions, all that sin— and I couldn't, I just couldn't figure out, I couldn't find the Bible. Well, what about, I mean, I'm sinning like crazy. I'm wrestling with sin more than I ever have as a Christian. And in my younger years as a Christian, I was so frustrated because I just couldn't, I felt like I was missing something. The non-Christians struggle with sin, right? And the Christians have overcome it, right? The non-Christians are enslaved to sin and the Christians are freed from sin, right? Then why in the world? It almost seemed like the more scripture I learned, the worse my sin became. But I'm going to say Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote, I think it's him that wrote, uh, either sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. Maybe he said the other way around. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. But I grew in my high school years to love this book. And it wasn't keeping me from sin. My sin just seemed to be getting worse. Have any of, is this, is it just me and Paul? I mean, have any of you experienced this? And you get all these rules, you get all these strategies to try to stop sinning as you're a Christian. Because you know Christians aren't supposed to sin. So you get accountability partners. Hey man, I need you to check up on me. I'm sinning like crazy. You get these strategies. Young men get uh, covenant eyes on their computer so that it shoots all the stuff they look at on their computer to somebody else to keep them accountable. And you know, We get prayer partners and all these strategies to follow the rules. And often it just flat out doesn't work. Our sin finds expression somewhere else. Maybe we stifle that particular expression, but that sin remains. And it's frustrating and it's confusing and you feel helpless. And you're filled with all this turmoil because of the guilt and, the, and you start to want to hide it. And you start to want to act like, I don't sin. I'm a Christian. 
because you think that's how Christianity works. It's not. I think we've understood what the rules are for. I know that I have in the past misunderstood what the rules are for. Because rules can't stop sin. Rules can't stop sin any more than a, and then a speed limit sign can stop you from speeding. Rules can't stop anything. I'm not really up on current events that well, so I'm probably about to make an idiot out of myself. But the Prime Minister David Cameron, that's his name, right, recently made a speech. They've had all kinds of riots and gang activity, I guess. Anybody familiar with this? Am I on? No? Okay. I heard this, so it's got to be true. I looked it up. It's true. He made this speech about what he called Broken Britain, and he said he's going to make it his number one job to turn around the lives of this 120,000 families that he perceives as being the root cause of all this violence and rioting and gang trouble. And he says the main problem is that these families are full of irresponsibility and selfishness. And he's going to fix the slow-motion moral decay of Britain. He's going to turn these families around. And you've got to be asking yourself, how? (laughs) That'd be great. Go for it. But how? How do you turn around sin in people's hearts? He's not going to be able to legislate it. Say it's illegal to be irresponsible from now on. It's illegal to be selfish from now on. That's not going to work. I think he misunderstands what the law is for too. But that's what this whole passage is about. This whole passage is Paul explaining the proper place of the rules of the law. Remember, he's writing to a church that was the old school Jewish Christians and then the modern, the new, the the pagans that had just recently gotten saved. So in the church was a mix of cultures of the traditional and the modern, the rule keepers and the people who love the freedom that they have in Christ. That's who he's writing to. And the whole book so far, he's been bashing the law. The gospel sets you free from the law. You don't have to live up to the law anymore. And you might start to think that the law is bad, but it's not. So back up with me even further to verse 7. And we'll read a couple of verses to get the idea of what he's talking about. To get the idea of why Christians still struggle with sin like they do. Verse 7. What shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing it an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, the law, the rules, the do's and don'ts, They don't kill sin. They expose it and provoke it. Ten commandments. Even the law, when I tell you that that God commanded us to love God and love people, that's not changing your hearts. That's exposing and provoking sin. 
Have you ever heard that? This is such a novel idea to me as I study this that explains so much of my experience as a Christian. It exposes it. In verse 7, it says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Excuse me, my voice just tried to leap out of my body onto the carpet. It provokes sin. That's what he says in in 8 through 12. But sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment. Sin is like a monster. It is active and aggressively against you. And it seizes opportunities to produce death in you. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to me to be death. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and it killed me. So how can he then conclude in verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That doesn't sound good. How can he, why is it like this? And how can he conclude that the law is good when it brings about death through sin? When it stirs up our sin? Well, I think he explains it in verse 13. Did did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. And here's the why. Here's how it works. Everybody still with me? Good. This is where it gets good. In order that, all this is true, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, it works this way, so that we will see just how bad and how deep our problem is. Our sinfulness is beyond measure. You cannot cope with or manage your sin. You cannot, through a computer program or through an accountability partner, cope with or manage your sin. It will seize every opportunity to kill you. So that we have to cry out like he does at the end of the passage in verse 24... Wretched man that I am. That word wretched means miserable, desperate man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Picture it like a, a, you ever see the movie Gremlins? I actually have never seen the movie Gremlins, but I remember it. They're these little fuzzy balls of hatred and pain and doom, right? Maybe I'm totally wrong. I should have, I should look these things up. Meredith told me to always look things up before I try to use them as examples. And I'm not doing so. Okay, picture, there's a gremlin inside you named sin. And yeah, it probably lies dormant a lot of the time. But when you come through those doors and you start to hear God's word, it's like God opens your mouth and pokes that gremlin with a stick. It doesn't kill it. It riles it up. It makes it angry. It provokes it. It stirs it up so that you have to acknowledge, whoa, there is a lot. There's a gremlin inside of me. (laughs) My problem runs way deeper than I thought. I thought I could take a pill and feel better. But no, I have a gremlin inside of me trying to eat me alive from the inside. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this gremlin? We need a deliverer. And this gets toward the good news. See, the law, think of the law and the do's and don'ts and what we know to be true about how we should live in Scripture like a smoke detector. A smoke detector is a good thing. But you don't use that to try to fight the fire. 
that thing goes off and you see smoke coming from the kitchen, you don't throw it in there like a grenade. You're not trying to fan it with the smoke detector. All that smoke detector is there to do is to say, you're about to die, get the heck out of there. All the law is meant to do is push us into the arms of the deliverer. You're about to die. You need a deliverer. So the good news, we made it. Those of you who are still with me, we made it to the good news. The good news is there is a deliverer. We have one. In verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God. Thank God we have a deliverer. If all we had was the law, it would just stir up your sin until it ate you alive. But we have a deliverer. You need Jesus just as much in your 80th year of being a Christian as you did in your first moment of being a Christian. I've heard it said that the gospel is not just the diving board that we spring off of into the Christian life. The gospel is the pool that we're swimming in. You need the good news that we have a deliverer from sin every day because your sin will plague you until Christ returns or until you die. A lot of people feel like, why does Matt have to keep talking about the gospel all the time? I heard it when I got saved. I believed it then. I'm sure I still believe it. I got it. Move on to five steps to having a healthier marriage or 10 steps to having an obedient pet. Get to the practical stuff. No, you, we, we only survive by the gospel. Tim Keller says it's not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z of Christianity. This whole book is just a big extended examination of the gospel. 16 chapters. It's deeper, wider, more glorious than you have any idea of, than I have any idea of at this point. Recently, I've started just kind of asking people, what is the gospel? I might be coming for you. I might ask you that, so start thinking about it, really. It's kind of a jarring question. Well, you explain to me, what, how do you perceive the gospel? What is the gospel? And I get all kinds of answers. A uh, popular one is, well, the gospel is, most people remember that it's good news, so they're trying to feel around, something about that. It's, it's good news that God loves us in, in, in the Bible. Basically, the gospel is the Bible. No, the Bible communicates the gospel, the Bible is not the gospel. Or some, I've heard someone say, oh, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is coming back for us. Well, I mean, that's part of the gospel. But that's not the heart of the gospel. The gospel is that we have a deliverer. The gospel is that our problem with sin is way worse than we ever imagined. But praise God, he didn't stand up there tapping his foot saying, get your act together, here's some rules, learn how to follow these, and then you can work your way up to me. No, instead he humbled himself, came down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, miraculously born, lived the perfect life that we failed to live so that he could pay our price for our sin. 
so that everybody who gives their life to him is then identified with him. In God's eyes, made perfect and clean. Able to be with him for eternity. The gospel is Jesus. If you try to explain the gospel to somebody and it doesn't include the word Jesus, you're getting it wrong. It's not God really loves you. It's God really loves you, so he sent Jesus. So if you'll go to Jesus, you can be saved from your sin. So the law exposes and provokes sin so that we'll see how desperately we need Jesus. This is why we're Christians, incidentally. We follow Christ, a man, not a moral code. The gospel is good news about what Jesus did, not advice about what you should do. So that's the good news. Okay, I have five implications of all this for you. And I have five minutes. Minute per application. Implication. Implication. Number one. Those of you who are sinners out here, which is all of you, but those of you who are all too aware of your sin, those of you who are caught up in some sin that you cannot disentangle yourself from, those of you who are prone to fits of rage and what comes out of your mouth, you're like, Paul, I I do not understand myself. Why do I act like that? You can't figure out why you can't stop. The implication of all this for you, don't despair. Just go to the deliverer. Don't despair and turn to rules and try to fix yourself. It's like running into the fire. Don't despair. If you will go to Jesus, the deliverer, you will be okay. What does that look like, though? That's one of those soft phrases that's vague, go to Jesus. It starts with repentance and belief. A, have you ever thought clearly about Christ and decided, do you even believe all this stuff about him? And if yes, have you ever committed yourself to follow him and believe in him? And been baptized to say that publicly? Maybe that's your first step. Maybe you're not even a Christian. Start there. But maybe you are a Christian and you're struggling with sin. In that case, go to Jesus. And what does that look like? He's not sitting right there. How do we go to Jesus? You go to him like, remember the Mary Martha story? Mary just sat at his feet and just went to him and just was with him. Whereas Martha was super busy trying to do a bunch of stuff. It really simply, it always comes back to the same things. He's revealed here. Go to him here and in prayer. If you don't know what that means or where to start, come talk to me sometime. Facebook me. I'll help you get in here. I exist for that. And then you you start to grow and you start to get more entranced with Jesus, the deliverer. It's not that you're not still wrestling with sin. It's that that's not the key thing defining who you are anymore. You're about Jesus now. You know, as deeply as Paul seems to wrestle with sin, he doesn't talk about this a whole lot in Scripture because mainly he's going, he's, he's making disciples. That's the end result of going to Jesus. Number two, um, expect a mess at Doolin's Grove. Expect things to get really, really messy here among us. Just go ahead and settle in for it. Put your seatbelt on. 
expect it to be messy here. This is a place where sin is exposed and provoked. This is a place where gremlins are (laughs) going crazy. Expect it to be messy. We're basically allergic to sin. Once you become a Christian, it's like you're allergic to it. I have really bad seasonal allergies. And so often you'll see me and I just look like I'm about to die. My eyes look bad. I look like I just want to close my eyes and curl up into a ball. And I do. And I just, my nose is running and I'm sneezing like crazy and I'm blowing my nose. And that's because my face rejects all this nature that keeps trying to cram itself in there. Some people aren't allergic like that. They can breathe in the same pollen, all that stuff. I don't know what happens to that pollen in your faces. But my face rejects it. And so it's messy. Sometimes you'll look at this whole area is messy. This whole area is going to be messy because Christians reject all this sin. We expose it. We provoke it. We get it out. We kill it. This is bloody. It's like an emergency room. This is not a clean place for clean people who are already done with sin at all. Expect there to be horrible sinners in this place. Don't be shocked when the people you know, when you find out, wow, they struggle with sin. But they're church people. Number three, don't act. This is really hard. Don't pretend that you're not struggling with sin. I don't mean you've got to walk around instead of saying, hey, how you doing? Confess all your most horrific, dark, secret sins. I don't mean that. But you don't have to act. There is a place, there should form relationships for you in this place with people that you can be 100% transparent with. I don't mean that you need to come up here and grab a mic and just vomit it all out. All your sick sin. But you should be developing relationships with some people here where you can be that transparent. Do not act. Where are you most comfortable? Most yourself. It should be here. This is the one place where we're all here because we all agree we're screwed up with sin. We need a deliverer. There should be no place more comfortable for sinners than this because we all are in the same boat together. All screwed up by sin, all needing the same deliverer. Number four, this is a good one. When you evaluate your walk with Christ, don't look so much at your morality. Look at your desire. Paul, while he's wrestling with all this, he says in several places, I'm out of time, so I'll just sort of tell you. He says, I hate this sin. I desire the good. I delight in the law. When you're trying to evaluate how you're doing, don't just look at your morality. Where's your heart? What do you really want? Maybe you're more aware of your sin than other people because you so desperately hate it and you so desperately want the good. Last one, number five. For other people that you know, offer deliverance, not condemnation. People who might come into our church, let's offer deliverance, not condemnation. Justin's question really struck me. Do we enjoy condemning other people's sin or are we moved to mourn for them, to pray for them, to hope 
that they will be pointed to Jesus Christ, the, the deliverer. And you know, honestly, I know I'm still going on here, and I see the sleepy looks on your faces. Late night last night? What's wrong? Honestly, our moral system isn't that much better than everybody else's. Can we just be that honest? Our moral system isn't that much better than everybody else's. Morality across the globe is pretty similar. What sets us apart isn't that our moral system is that much greater. I'm open to the fact that I might have non-Christian neighbors who might be a better husband than me. What I offer isn't how wonderfully moral I am, but I know the deliverer. That's what sets Christianity apart. Not our superior moral system, our deliverer. So point people to Jesus. Don't critique people. And remember, when someone you know and love is in sin, remember where we're going next week, the very first verse in chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's possible for any of the worst sinners you know to find their way to Christ and to be free from condemnation. Long for that for people. Pray for that for people. Point people to Christ. And it can be as simple as rehearse this question. All right, maybe someone's coming to your mind that you need to talk to about Christ. Rehearse this question. Where are you at with Jesus? You can make you and at one word. Where are you at with Jesus? Is that that difficult? Not, hey, you should come to church. I mean, that'd be great. I'll tell them about Jesus. But just, hey, man, we've been friends for a while. Where are you at with Jesus? Might be weird. I don't want to be awkward. I don't want to be a weirdo, but... I really believe this stuff, and I'm wondering where you're at with Jesus. So in conclusion, I have 13 more points about why. (laughs) The bad news is really bad. The good news is really great. The law exposes and provokes our sin so that we will run ferociously into the arms of the deliverer, Jesus Christ, and take as many people as we can with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It just gets down into all the crevices where we don't often look and think. And I pray that it will prove powerful in our hearts. I pray that you would move people to respond to your word. There are people in this room, I'm convinced, that are not Christians. And I pray that you would regenerate their hearts and save them through Jesus Christ. Help us all to be a people who run to the deliverer every day and take people with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, just one note. As we sing our closing song, it's a great time if you want to come forward and pray about anything. If you know that you need to become a Christian, if this is you, come up here and I'll talk to you about it right now. We'll pray together right now during this song. Or if you just need to do some business praying, we have the prayer benches. It's a great opportunity. I'll just come ask if you want me to pray with you. And if you say no, I'm not going to bug you. Use this as an opportunity to respond before we get out there and life gets loud and busy and we forget God's word.